Our two verses, I'm sure you know what they are. We're talking about soul winners. Soul winners, a very important subject, which so often in teaching churches gets set aside as something we ought to do, but it's not really a big deal. And yet, it is a big deal. It is a big deal, especially the more you read it and study it and you find so many references to what we're here on this earth for. And to make a longer story short that we've already said, God uses people to save people. And the people who do the ministering to the lost out there are people who have been taught and they have learned and they have a desire to go because they realize by the inspiration of God that if you don't go, nobody else will. And it's our duty, our responsibility to carry the message of salvation outside of these walls to wherever we go. The two verses we looked at, one is in Luke chapter 5 in verse 10, where Jesus said to Peter, fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. We used to sing a song when I was in vacation Bible school about God will make us fishers of men. Remember that? Well, that probably comes from this verse of scripture. Jesus said we are so busy about things in this life that benefit us. He says, you're going to benefit me. You'll do all these other things, but you're going to be for my glory when it's over. And that's what we're here for. The other verse was in Proverbs 11:30 that says simply, he that winneth souls is wise. If we're wise people, we'll realize what I've just said is true, that we have a purpose, a God-given purpose, a directive from God to do his bidding to the lost. And what do we say and what do we do? Well, we can always begin with two words, what and why. The two questions that begin with those words that everybody in this room needs to master yourself. All of you do. I don't know if you can. I don't know how many of you do. I don't know how many of you take it serious or how I take it to heart. But the first question is what? I mean, what, what would happen to you if, the, if tonight was the last night of your life? You're reading the paper all the time, but that happens. If this was your last day on earth and you wouldn't be here tomorrow, where would you be tomorrow? You say, well, I'd be in heaven. Well, the next question is why? Why would God let you in heaven? If he asked you the question tonight, all of you here, those of you watching, why should I let you in heaven? What would you say? Would you say, I, uh, I don't know? Then you'd have to say that you've never had that kind of information given to you in your earthly life. You've never known why or what God requires of us to enter into heaven. Most people think, well, I'm, I'm not a bad person. I'm good. And therefore, the, the saving of a soul is based on how good a soul is. Has nothing to do with Jesus. Has nothing to do with anything else. It's just how good a person are you. Now, nobody's perfect. We like to say that because that's an excuse for being a little bad. Oh, nobody's perfect. I mean, nobody cannot sin, yet the Bible says we're not supposed to sin. And that's a problem if you sin. You say, well, nobody can live like that. Well, I beg to disagree with you. Then the message gets a little too hard. Most people say, we don't like it that hard because the church has grown up on everything soft. And Christian people want everything that they do to be okay in the end of their life. And it's not. Because God requires us to live on a level 
that is far above anything the world has to say. Any of the ways of the world. And there's nobody good enough. You know that, don't you? Nobody good enough. Why would God let you in heaven? Because I have accepted as true the report that God has given to me about Jesus and what he did on my behalf. And I believe it. And because I believe it, and that's all I can do. You said, for by grace through faith am I saved. Therefore, I accept this on your terms, and I receive your salvation. I take it by faith. I can't see it. I don't feel it. I have never been there yet. I have to believe what I've heard is true. It's as simple as that. But now who believes? Well, then that's another sermon. We'll work on that a little while. Who believes? How can we know if you believe? Is there a way to tell if somebody's a believer? Is there some way that we can identify a believer? We're good at identifying non-believers, aren't we? Heathens? I mean, you can tell the, the words that they use, the way they act, the activities they're involved in, the things that they do as their pleasure or pastime, the way they talk, whether they are interested in God or not. I mean, there's many ways you can realize that the fruit on the tree is not good. If the fruit is not good, the root's not good. We don't like to say that because, well, that sounds judgmental. Well, it is judgmental. You're calling black, black, white, white, a fig tree, a fig tree. But the Bible, Jesus said, you got to judge righteous judgment. Your judgments can't be based on how you feel. It's what God said. What could we preach about if we were never allowed to judge anybody's sin? And I think that's happened in so many churches. Preachers don't want to offend people. They want to make everybody happy. They like to have a good report. So we just leave a lot of subjects alone that irritate people or badger people. We certainly don't want to say anything about holidays and Christmas. And I've had reports here through the years. Well, why do you have to keep talking about it? Why not? Well, we don't like to hear about divorce and remarriage. Somebody gave me a note once that we're never going to have anybody come to this church. Well, let me see. We've got a few here. Why do we have to leave all these things alone about taking the oath? Or non-resistance. Why do we have to leave all that alone? Because people don't want, really and truly, don't want to have to judge themselves. Because your conscience comes into play, and it's tough to live in this world with a smile on your face if your conscience bears witness to your wrongs. We don't like to be told we're wrong. Some preachers, the most successful preacher today, I guess, never talks about sin because it's a subject that people don't, don't like. So what do you say? You tell people what they like to hear. And consequently, they can't stand to hear much of anything else. They really can't. And sometimes visitors come to church and they get up and walk out. A preacher told me that once. Friends in the church had visitors that came to see him. They brought him to church. Halfway through, they walked out, found out later, what's wrong? Well, he's too hard. Too hard. Be telling people what Jesus said is too hard. We're asking the question that will deal with that. When is a soul one? He that winneth souls is wise. Well, when is a soul one? Or on the basis of what will we be one? How can we know? We said last week these things. Number one, there are certain musts in the Bible, things you must do to be saved. One, you must be born again. That's a fundamental primary message in the Bible. All you preachers have to master that. Preach it once a year. Every year, like clockwork, you must be born again. And never assume that everybody in your church is, because they're not. 
So you preach it. It gives people something to think about. It gives you something to deal with in your own life. Ask yourself the question, am I born again? Is there any evidence of it? How do I know I'm born again? So you, you deal with that, and we've talked about that. But the new birth is what God does. The second thing that we said is that you must repent. You must repent. One of the great themes in the Bible, because you see, what Jesus made available to us, when God opens our eyes to see it cost him that much, that you were loved so much that somebody would pay that kind of a horrible price to redeem you from your sins. And so you're to be, you're to see that with the eyes that God gives you and to realize it was your sin that put Christ on the cross. It was the way I lived and acted and took liberties with foolishness that put him on the cross. That's why he went to the cross. I did that. And what he did, he did for me. So there's a sorrow, a kind of sorrow about the shame that you, that you are such a person that you are. All the ways and the words you use and the way you acted. Boy and girl goes to church together and then they get home and they get a little bit passionate. Next thing you know, sin rules in their lives. And you think, how can it be? It happens all the time. Happens all the time. You got to repent. When you repent, you change your mind. Except you repent and be converted. When you're converted, you turn around. Now, you either did or you didn't. You either do or you don't. Amen? Now, there's no in-between area. There's no almost. There's no such thing as, well, God knows I really meant well. That's no such thing. What God knows, we know. We see what you do. We know what you believe. We hear what you talk about. We know what you believe. Out of abundance of a man's heart, that's what he believes. God says God has commanded all men everywhere now to repent. Jesus, the first words of his sermon in Mark 1 was, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He sent his disciples out two by two to do miracles and signs and wonders and to preach the kingdom of God. And the first thing they said was, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You've got something made available to you you can't have unless you turn around and give up the old life. Look what God did for you. Look what God did for you. And it's free. You can't earn it. You can't be good enough. You'll never be good enough. You'll never be worthy enough on your own merits. Everything you need, everything that needs to be done has already been done for you in Christ. You must believe. And repent, repentance and belief, conversion, they all run together. And it's how you turn away from your sins and you turn to Christ. That's why we're baptized. Repent and be baptized. But repentance comes first. When the disciples went out on the day of Pentecost, whenever they preached, the words preached on Pentecost really affected those people. It was God was in it. It was the beginning of the church. It was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, testifying that an age different than any other age has started. It's a New Testament, a new covenant, not of law, but of the blood of Christ to cleanse our sins and faith in him to take advantage of all of its benefits. Something new has started. And they said, men and brethren, what do we do? The answer that Peter gave in that day is to repent. Repent. He said, he said in Luke, he said, repent 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. But you get nothing until you repent. Joining church never means that you repented. Hopefully, people repent and join church. But there is nothing you can do to bypass your need for repentance. And repentance is more than just being sorry about something you did. It's a deeper sorrow and shame for the fact that you were willing to do it, and that was your nature. I mean, you were corrupt on the inside. There was a darkness that ruled you. And you're offered forgiveness, the remission of your sins, everything that held you before hell, everything that, that held us over the pit. God made provisions for us to be forgiven for it so that we could be planted in his courts and be new creatures in Christ. Brand new people in Christ. It's given to us. And yet, people think that repentance is a good idea, but not so necessary because, well, the church I grew up in, all they wanted from me was to come forward on my 11th birthday or 12th birthday, make a profession of Christ, and get baptized in the baptistry behind the wall, meet the people at the church after church was over, and that was it. I was one to Christ. And I think my life only got worse and worse after that. So you see, there's a whole lot that, that is required for us to be the way we ought to be and what God wants from us. When God knocked Paul on the ground on the road to Damascus, the words that he said to him was that, and these were Paul's testimony, he said, God sent me to open the eyes of the Gentiles and from darkness to light that they may receive forgiveness of sins. That's the big issue is sins. Sin. Remember the song, My Sin? Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not the part, but the whole thing was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. What a wonderful song. That the whole thing is taken off you. You no longer have to stand before God guilty for all your sins. Everything you committed has been forgiven. You're clean. Now, build yourself up in the Lord. Get yourself rooted and grounded in Christ. Make yourself useful to God. For this is what repentance should lead to in our lives. On the day of Pentecost, or the day after Pentecost, or the time after Pentecost, Peter said, repent and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. It goes back to sin again. And conversion, we learned, was simply a turning around, a changing of the mind. Now, let me ask you a question tonight. Is there some kind of visible evidence of conversion? Are you converted because you said you are? Oh, I'm converted. <laughs> I'm converted. Are you? Is there a way to know? Should we expect some kind of a change? Should it be required? Should you require of yourself some kind of an obvious change of, and discipline in your life? Or did you just go to church and have an emotional moment, but then you're back to boogieing around and carrying on and acting like a heathen? Were you one to Christ? I don't think so. If any man be in Christ, he's a new what? Old things are passed away. Behold, what? All things become new. If they don't become new, it never happened. Now, why should that be hard? That should not be a hard thing for us to deal with. But there should be some way that we can know. 
Go back to Paul's testimony, Acts 26. Paul's testimony, chapter 26. Acts 26 and verse 20. Here's what he said in preaching the message, bringing light to these people. I quoted verse 18 while ago to open their eyes. This was God's message to Paul, the direction that Paul should go. He said to open their eyes and turn them from darkness unto light. How do you turn somebody from darkness to light? I thought only God could. Well, only God does, but he uses you to bring the message and God adds conviction to the message that somebody you're talking to. They respond to that message, not because you have something different, but God anoints it. Are you with me? All we do is talk. All we can do is talk. Now, we want to try to do it better, so we want to get real, oh, but all we have to do is talk and depend on God to make it work. You don't have to be, well, I'm not winning anybody to Christ. You just preach the gospel. You sow the seed. Somebody else may get to lead them to Christ. You sow the seed. You spread it wherever you go. Mention it. Talk about it. Tell somebody about it. They may not respond, but somebody will come behind you. One souls, one does this, but God will reap the harvest. So he said, I'm going to go preach to them. I'm going to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God. They may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith, which is in me. Verse 20. He said, but showed first unto me at Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of, of Judea and then to the Gentiles, here it is, that they should repent and turn to God and, and what? And do works worthy for repentance. Should that be required? That's what Paul preached. You folks need to repent and turn away from your sins and becoming a new person in Christ, you should now live in a way that we call doing something, but you're only responding to God's direction, which is you doing something. God gives you something to do and you do it. Whether it's talking, living, smiling, helping, whatever we do as Christians. He said you do works that prove and demonstrate you really have turned from your sins. He's changing me. My blessed Savior, I'm not the same person that I used to be. How do we know? Well, sometimes it's slow going, but you know, there's a knowing that someday perfect I'll be. But in the, in the meantime, I just refuse to go back to where I was. I refuse to throw in the towel, refuse to give up, sit down and whine and claim, claim I'm a victim. It's better than that. It's kingdom of God's bigger than that. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If I did go back, what would I go back to? The very thing that was sending me to hell. I want to go back to that? I don't think so. A wise man wouldn't do that. Now, a foolish man would because he's weak. He doesn't have much of a spiritual game or a mental game. He gives up easy, or she does. They live the rest of their life wondering why it never worked for me. Well, this is made to work. This word does work. But listen to it again. At the end of verse 20, he said that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. Now, while we're talking about that, turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3 
And this is what John the Baptist said. John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. And in chapter 3 and verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, I give thanks to God that you have come today to have your lives changed and to surrender yourselves and your wills to God so that you may go to heaven. What did he say to them? This guy would be blasted so bad today for the way he said this. In this weakened age that we're in, spiritually weakened age of a church that can stomach little. And I mean it. If I get to preaching, that's fine because this is where I am. We're living in a time the church, as it's called, can stomach very little of what God has to say. Very little of it. And these Pharisees who were viewed as being the spiritual know-alls and who expected to be esteemed. They sat in the best seats, they prayed it around, prayed the loud prayers, tithed and broadcast their righteousness. John the Baptist saw them coming. John didn't even have a calling card. He didn't, there was no advertisement on the local station in Jerusalem. He didn't even do his bidding in, in Jerusalem where the religious centers were, the synagogue. John the Baptist was out in the wilderness. Now, I've been there. Maybe he's on the edge of town, but he's not far out of Jerusalem. On the edge of town, it's pretty bad. It gets pretty rough. And he didn't want anything to do with the religious establishment. Now, today, that would anger people in churches like this. Oh, man, don't say that. They're good people. We're just saying what Jesus said. Jesus didn't even call them good. You know what he called them? Brood of vipers, hypocrites, whitewashed tombs. He said, your proselytes through your indoctrination wind up being twice as much a child of hell as you are. That's what Jesus said. No CNN for him. No big crusades in some big city for Jesus. I'm telling you, folks, it just wouldn't have happened like that. And it said that these Pharisees came to Jesus. Let me get back to that. Verse 7, when he saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to his baptism, he said to them, O generation of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, they hadn't said a word as far as we can tell. All they had done was find out where John is. He's not in Jerusalem. Where is this guy? We're hearing about John the Baptist. Where is he? He's in the wilderness. Well, where at in the wilderness? I don't know. People find him. Well, let's see if we can find him. So here they show up at the water baptism. I've been to the Jordan. It's, it's not much to clap your hands about. It's just a creek. So he was there at the Jordan. They came in all their finery. And they got in line. Apparently, they got ordered to get in the water to get baptized. And John said, <laughs> I'm going to like meeting this guy. He said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? They hadn't said anything. He just said, you people, I know what you represent. I know what you believe. I know the effect of your lives on people. I know that you really have nothing to do with, with the word of God and living right. Who has warned you to flee from the wrath of God? You see, getting saved means not only are your sins forgiven, 
but you're turned around to face not his wrath, but his blessings. He said, who warned you people to turn from the way you live and the, your doctrines and everything? You know what he said next in verse 8? Let me ask you before we read it, is it still valid tonight? He said, bring forth therefore fruits, meet or worthy for repentance. Does that mean that if somebody has repented, it'll be evident by a better lifestyle? Well, not just a better lifestyle, but a life that reflects obedience to the word of God. That's the new way. We don't just think of new things to do that makes us good and glorious. That's what the Pharisees did. We begin to find out how we're supposed to live. That's why we're here. We learn, we teach, and, and we begin to take this word to heart, and we begin to live in this way, and the reflection of our lives is no longer the old way, but this new way. The people can hopefully take note that we have been with Jesus. Look at the effect he's had on us. Look at how he's affected his people. They couldn't silence these people. They crucified Jesus and his people were scattered and they were killed and slaughtered. Read Hebrews 11. And they couldn't shut them up. They couldn't stop them. They were so inspired by the Lord as God's mouthpiece, they didn't count their lives to be something they have to cherish. It didn't even belong to them anymore. They went out and preached everywhere that men should repent. But if you repent, there should be some evidence of it. If you just came forward in a little church service and said, I do to the preacher, and you go out that door and you live the way you've always lived, I don't think you ever did repent. I think one of the reasons that I came to the Lord years ago, I don't know this happened that morning, but I, I think I realized that I, my life is nothing but sin. I've never quit sinning. I've never gave up sin. I like church membership. I like to be spoken of in terms of social goodness. I never quit sinning. I didn't give up running around and cavorting. I didn't give that up. I just like the idea that I felt good about myself. I go to church. Didn't matter what church you went. I'd go to church with my daddy some morning, and that was a waste of time. But I felt good. In fact, I was in church. Hey, I ain't that bad. There's a little bit of good in me. I'm sure God sees that. But John said, you bring forth fruit. Listen to what one translation said. He said, let your life then prove your repentance. Another translation says, let your change of heart be seen in your lives. If you've been converted to Christ, there will be evidence for all of us. There will be evidence in every one of our lives if we have been converted. If we're only religious, then all we do basically is go to church and try to be a better person on our terms. That's about it. What's wrong with that? Well, what's good with that? That isn't what gets the heart of God or the ear of God. God wants us to serve him and walk with him on his terms. Last time we talked about baptism. I think we ended there with baptism. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 6. Baptism was as much a New Testament big deal as repentance was because in Acts chapter 2 and chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 16 and chapter 18 and chapter 19, there's seven chapters in the book of Acts in which when there was a conversion, there was immediately or right after that water baptism. 
They didn't wait till Easter. They got baptized right away because there was something in baptism that was vital. But as far as I can still remember, Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That to me would make it a must. Baptism, water baptism is not an option. Water baptism is tough on a $50 permanent. It'll rule it out. So some people, well, I'm, I'm all dollied up this week, maybe another week or two. That ain't the way you do it. When you get saved, you get baptized. Who can baptize you? you you're, whoever is with you can. Doesn't say you have to be a man. Doesn't say you, you can't be a woman. Doesn't have to be a preacher. Could be your daddy. Could be your brother. Now, the word baptism has been a word of debate for years because it does not say that baptism is immersion. But it would be hard to understand how Philip and the Ethiopian went down into the water to sprinkling. Now, there are people who sprinkle. That's their business. I'm not their judge. I would not do that for myself because I don't believe that's what the Bible means. Because, you see, I believe that baptism portrays redemption. And I believe that water baptism is a public testimony of yourself to whoever wants to watch that I made a decision that's going to change my life. I've asked God to forgive me of my sins. And in Romans here, it'll tell us that when I turned from my sins, I identified myself with Christ. And when Christ died on the cross, I died. Because I am what he did, he did for me. I put him there. And so what he did was, was mine to have done to me. So I identified with his death. When God raised him from the dead, he raised me from the dead. If he's alive, I'm alive. As he is, so am I in this world. Take a, a new creature in Christ who is repentant of his sins. And symbolically, you lower him into a watery grave. Not an earthly grave, but a water Water is symbolic in the Old Testament. It's cleansing. It's part of the purifying rites of the priest in the Old Testament. It was water. We're born of water and of spirit. So the water here is baptism. So you go down and you're buried. You go under. And then you're raised from that watery grave. Your sins symbolically are washed away and you're now clean before God, ready to walk in newness of life. And it's that picture that you see in Romans chapter 6 and verse 2. Romans 6, 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer in sin? Dead to sin? Yeah. Know ye not that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism unto death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also in, be in the likeness of his resurrection. Our old man is crucified. We're new creatures in Christ. That's what baptism is about. How would you bypass that? Why would there be no significance, meaning in a person's life for water baptism? I've done a, a little bit of baptizing the people in my life. It's not something that I necessarily have to do. I don't know, the apostles may have done some of it, but it was people, elders in the church, men in the church, 
Maybe, maybe mothers baptize their children. I don't know. Bathtub outside in the horse trough, if you have such a thing. Down at the creek, in the pond, <laughs> in the pond when the cows are not in it. It's something you must do. But listen, water baptism is not an option. Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. If you're going to be one to Christ, you're going to have to do this too. This, this goes along with that. Notice these words, Galatians 3 and 27. For as many of us as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There should be evidence of that. Colossians 2 and verse 12. Buried with him in baptism wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. Your identification means you died and now you live. And your sins are washed away. You're a new person in Christ. You should now walk in newness of life. This is, this is what God wants. Now, how many people do we know that have gone forward in a church service, raised their hand, asked God to do this, maybe very emotionally? prayed an emotional prayer, just, oh, God, and pled with God, asked God to forgive them, and we were so glad. I was. And they did well for a while, and then you don't see them ever again. Or if you do see them, they don't want to talk to you, they avoid you. Were they one? I'm sure there are preachers who say, oh, they're, they're one. I wouldn't, I wouldn't agree to that. I don't think the Bible says that. I think you begin with the new birth. And I think you're directed in a new way. And I believe baptism is part of it. And I believe people have gone forward in the church, raised their hand, prayed with mom, dad at, a, at an evangelistic crusade. Many have been water baptized. Many have gone on witnessing campaigns, missionary trips. Does that mean you're one if you do that? Or you go to school and be a preacher? Or you just be a preacher. Does that mean you're one? It should mean that. But that doesn't prove you're one. Your life proves you're one. Not only the life that people can't see, you and God alone privately when you're alone, but when we're all together, when we meet together, our choices, our actions, our expressions, our enthusiasm, our indifference, everything points to something in your life that drives you, that, that is in charge of your life. And so many who started well, they just didn't finish. Remember this story of the sower and the seed? Let's look at Matthew chapter 13 and verse 20. Matthew 13 and verse 20. But he that received the seed, that's the word of God. He that received the seed into stony places, the same as he that heareth the word and immediately with joy received it. Is that good? It is good. Is he one? This is the way it starts. You can't say he's not. I mean, you can't see his heart. God sees his heart. Was Judas one? Acts 1.17 said he was numbered with us, but he was not a part of this. So you can't just tell about the crowd or the church or your activities. God sees our heart. In verse 20, he said, immediately with joy he received the word, yet hath he not root in himself, 
He just got busy in some church that made him busy. He endured some difficulties for a while, but when tribulation or persecution began to arise because of the word, by and by, the Bible says, he is offended. One footnote said that he falls back into sin. He can't take it because of the shallowness and the weakness of Christianity today on this planet. Things have been watered down to appease the indifferent. While I'm talking, and a lot of people, I just I said, or just don't have a stomach for all of this. They want religion, they want to go to heaven, tell us how good we are, but don't demand anything from us. And yet Jesus never will leave you alone. And if you don't want to be bothered with, by him and his chastening and so forth, he'll leave you alone. More than once, as the words in the Bible says, God gave them up. Can that happen to people like us? Well, I sure didn't, I wouldn't want it to. That'd be a terrible thing to happen. But he says here, these people, by and by, they were offended. And I'll tell you something else. When people are offended by religion, they seem to gravitate to other people that were also offended by religion. And they get together and they form their little anti-attitudes about whatever they turned away from. I don't think you have to do that. Well, that's not necessary. They're just a legalistic bunch down there. He's too hard, preaches too long, blah, 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 blah. And what you're saying is, I don't have a stomach for all that God has to say to me tonight. I don't really want all of that. I didn't come here to be ground into the ground and told that I need to repent or told that after I so-called repent that I have to live in some holy way. Nobody's perfect, they say. And yet you read in the Bible, it said, be you therefore holy as your Father in heaven is holy. Colossians 1, 28, Paul says, I warn every man I meet because I want to present every man perfect in Christ. All the imperfections that we've ever had, God's going to deal with them because he wants to change us. And the world will take note in the end that we are God's and we will bring glory to him in the last days. We'll, we'll make it. Look at verse 22. These are those that stayed with it longer. They stayed with it for a little while. He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. What do they do? They choke the word. Now, wait a minute. What does that end by saying? They choke the word and what happened? They become unfruitful. Let's, let's just for a minute. We got time. What do you mean became unfruitful? Is it necessary for us to bear fruit? Is fruit labor of what we do? Yeah, it's either good or bad, isn't it? Everything you do bears fruit. Either good or bad. You can't have it any other way. Fruit is what we do. And it says here, the reason that churches are full of unfruitful people. Let me read it. Just read it for yourself. I'm not making this up. They hear the word. No problem hearing it. They go to, let's say they go to a good place to hear it. They hear the word, but what happens to it? The word gets, say choke. The word gets choked out of their lives. By what? All these things that they get 
involved in. They get busy. The kids, school, sports, business, work, uh, money, and prestige. Now we got to do, we got more things we got to do now. We can't always just limit ourselves to having to be, and things begin to change. Instead of being here when you should be here to hear the word, you got, you justified being somewhere else, hear nothing. Now, that may not sound good, but it's true. And we say, well, you know, I can always get a tape and listen to it. You can't get tapes anymore. There, there's no such thing. You got to get a CD now. Faith for CD tapes. I don't know what we're going to call it. Faith for living, I guess. You ever in this hour right now, you ever look back at where you once were and then wonder why you're not more than that now? Don't answer me. You ever wonder why your enthusiasm, if it has, why your enthusiasm has waned? What has taken most of your time now? What, who gets the bulk of your time now? What are you most loyal to now? Because there was a time, maybe, nothing would keep you from going to church. Nothing would, nothing would keep you from being here. It had to be a bad snow and a bad night to keep you out. That's understandable. But you, uh, you run a mission. Boy, you were something behind you was from heaven. There was a divine push at your back, and you loved it because God was causing so much to come from that push. Boy, you're getting, oh, Jesus. And even the nights in which all you did was just listen with your eyes shut, the preacher said something, and those words became little pictures, and you saw, and you saw things that just wanted to glorify God. I mean, just so much peace and joy. If you've ever been there, and you're not there now, as you look back and the years in which this thing should grow richer and more, more fluffy, what happened? If you once used to witness and you don't anymore, if you used to worship and you don't anymore, so you have to ask yourself a question. Has the world choked me down? I mean, have I given in to something that's not good for me and therefore I've powered down? I don't know. I'm just saying these are questions that we ask ourselves to cleanse ourselves from filthiness of flesh and, and spirit. We don't want to live like this. God help me. You ever pray for fire? Lord, give me some fire. I did the other morning, a couple weeks. I, Lord, I want some fire. I don't want to put on a show. I don't want to go through all of that and say, wow, what's wrong with him? I just want some fire. I want the words to be like fire. When they roll out of your mouth, I want them to just burn up everything that's chaff and everything that's fleshly and worldly. Because if you give up on that, I don't know what you do. But he said, he said, when the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, it becomes unfruitful. Now, just passing so we can move on, go to John chapter 15. Verse 4, Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you. As a branch, that's you, cannot bear fruit of yourself, except it abide in the vine. No more can you, except you abide in me. Now, if we're not producing any fruit, then apparently we're not abiding in Christ. Would you agree to that? All right. Verse 5, I am the vine. You are the branches. 
He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. And then those days in the next verse where the pruning begins to take place and the things get pruned in your life, you think, what's going on? Well, he's making you more fruitful tomorrow. Listen, when the word gets choked in our lives and the performance of the word is we've been justified and excuse making so much that we kind of suppress it and we're not bearing any fruit unto God. We're church fruit. We're busy doing things in the church. We become good church members and, and that, that's good. But you can't leave Christ out of this. It's what we're doing, what he wants us to. Are we doing it the way he wants us to? Are we together on the, on the way that would please him? Are we looking to him with what we're doing or are we just including him in our system? And if we're not doing it right, are we willing to change what we're doing in order to do it right? See, our heart gets tested. It's all about this too. When we get changed, God changes our hearts. Jesus begins to take residence in this place that has been ruled by the devil your whole life. And he becomes a master and he sends a signal up to your mind, which has got to be renewed because that's where your opposition is. Well, that doesn't make sense. Well, how can we do that? Well, why would he want to do it that way? Well, I can't. And you have to fight that. And every time you bring those thoughts captive to Christ, you start pulling down those strongholds where you've been controlled by the devil and your life begins to change, people begin to notice it. You know, you've changed. Like the athletic director in Charlestown years ago when I left, the last day I was entering my office, cleaning out my office, and Louis Kleffer, I don't know if he's still alive or not, I hope he is. He says, well, Hamilton, I'll say this for you. If I ever get religion, I want to get it the way you got it. I think I said something like, well, you know, Lewis, we can, we can start doing that right now. And, yeah, well, I just made a comment now. I don't start preaching to me. Because you see, people can tell. They watch you under fire. They watch you react. They watch you act. They watch everything that you do. And if we've been one to Christ, then it should be evident that Christ is mastering us by our consent we willingly yield to the Lordship of Christ and we begin to let him have his way. Because you see, if, if we don't, then on the basis of what are we one to Christ? Is it goodness? You hear that a lot at funerals. Well, he was a good man. Well, a Christian could be a good person. Well, call no man good, the Bible says. At the same time, it says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. So deal with it. But our goodness won't get us to heaven. And the Jesus in us is not something people around you want. You know that, don't you? When you live this life, they don't want to hang around you. I know a guy one time that was going on a, a trip with some other men. And uh, he's a professing Christian. I don't doubt it. But he was telling me that, uh, you know, the crowd he was with was, uh, when they got out of town, some of the pictures and the magazines and the talk was pretty nasty. And then, you know, you wonder, what am I doing here? Because there's something probably lacking in my life that they don't mind me being around them because somehow or another, like the church today, I'm, I'm pretty harmless. 
I don't bother people. And yet, if they know your lifestyle, they don't want you to go with them. You know why? Because you ruined the trip or you ruined the gathering. I'm just saying, folks, that, that there is a way that we should live that identifies us as being one to Christ, as being a soul that not only has been brought to Christ, but is still existing on Christ's terms. So if we don't do that, I think back of those people that I knew in days gone by, the many people that I used to hear preach and preach with, and the perceived passion in those days about what they believed. Faith was a big deal, and everywhere you went, boy, it was that, and everybody had a testimony about faith. And now today, as I'm standing here tonight, I'm only asking the question, where are all of them? What happened? Why did you give it up or walk away from it or grow silent? Is, is it like Titus 1 and verse 16? They, they profess to know God, but in works, they deny him. And he mentions three things, being abominable and two other things, disobedient. Let me ask you a question. Does being a preacher back in the heyday and heralding the truth and diligently going to your meetings and getting your message and pre does that mean you're one? It should. Because if you're preaching it, you ought to live it, right? And if the spirit that is in you is propelling your life, then the words that come out of your mouth should affect other people and you'll never give it up. But if you can give it up and walk away from it, and so many of the people that listen to that have scattered, they're probably still wanting it back, but they just got scattered. Where are all these guys? What happened to all the many meetings? Did the people get tired of it? Maybe it was too hard. Maybe we preached too hard. Like that couple that visited was telling you about, and they got up and walked out, said it's too hard. Or we're too legalistic. We require too much. Now, who said that? If you say, well, I wish you'd leave those holidays alone, what's your connection to the holidays? What is it about a holiday that makes you squirm when somebody talks about Christmas? I mean, what is it about Christmas that is so, so necessary for you to defend? It's not of God. God didn't start it. It wasn't when Christ was born. There is no Santa Claus. Now, why do you keep talking about it? I don't talk about it every day. I just talk about it when it comes up. So why, what's wrong with that? Well, that's too hard. You shouldn't talk like that. You know the problem? You know the problem, folks? You don't want to give it up. You don't want to get rid of it. You don't want to have to explain to your friends that you brought to a church like this. One couple, a preacher told me one time that, that a couple told him, well, I don't know if I could bring people here to church because you might talk about Christmas. Boy, I, you talk about firing me up. I, it, it does. That fired me up. I think, well, if you would contend for the faith like you would contend for Santa, you'd be, a, you'd be strong. What are you afraid of? You won't get a present? You're going to be persecuted? The Bible says you're going to be hated. Your religion. 
It's seen in your works, the choices you're making, the way you're living your life, and people begin to take note of it, and they begin to challenge you and persecute you. You cannot avoid it. It's either that or give all of that stuff up that brings persecution, power down, and just kind of keep a low profile and not say much. That's not what God gave us to do. That's not why we're here. Listen, heaven is worth every sacrifice you'll ever have to pay. I cannot make hell as awful as I'm sure it is. I can't. I don't have enough words to bring it to the, to the awfulness that it is. But if, if a man or a woman in this world, anybody, the weakest, those mouthiest ones in the big leagues, the weakest mentally and spiritually are those people. They can't afford to have Christ in their life because they would lose something. But they lose the very riches of this world that's enticing them to forsake Christ. And when they get their millions of dollars, how much of those millions of dollars go to the support of the gospel? How many of them ever, what you call tithe, how many of them would do that? Well, man making $25 million a year, you mean $2.5 million to go to some church? <laughs> Die hardly. Go ahead. Keep it. Keep it. Spend it on yourself. Churches are nothing but crooks anyway and money hawkers. Keep it. Keep it in your pocket. Go buy your car. Go buy your house. Go buy you something with it. God doesn't need it. You know what people tell you? And just remember, when you come to the end of your life, you're under a curse. You're under a curse because you, by choice, have robbed God. And therefore, what is awaiting you, I don't care what you did, how loud you did it, you'll never be good enough to get away from that. See, we need to think along these lines as we consider our salvation with the Lord. Holy people are holy people. Not just religious people, holy. Putting a lot of emphasis on our relationship with God and what he wants from us. Otherwise, what are we? Turn to Hebrews 6. What a tough chapter this is. But turn to Hebrews 6. We might as well do it all tonight. And verse 4. For it is impossible. Now, if this is for those who started and then some reason gave up and never came back. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they should fall away, to renew them again into repentance. If you want to read that right, you can start it, say it this way, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened to taste the heavenly gift, if they should fall away, to bring them back again to repentance, seeing that they crucify afresh the Lord. The very thing, the way you used to live that caused Christ to have to die for your sins is the way you're living again. You repented once, you say, you turned away from your sins, you were busy in church, you tasted the good word of God, you took notes, you enjoyed it. The powers of the world to come, you saw things happen, you, God did wonderful things in your life. You experienced all of that. And then for whatever reason, whatever the reason, 
You just turn away from it. Power down. It's no longer important. The world's what's important now. The world. Fun and games. Being noticed. Being wealthy. Having a car, a house, and pretty girls if you're a boy. And where does that lead you? What's the end of that life? When that life, doing all that's over, then what? Then you're back to where we started this message tonight. You got two questions to answer in your life. Two questions. One of them begins with what, and the other begins with why. What would happen now if you died? What happens if you die in the midst of your sin? I saw on the road the other day a big block all the way to Simpsonville or somebody would run under the back of a truck and then they said they died. It was a terrible looking wreck. You know, that happened so fast. That happened so fast that from one moment you're coming on the highway looking for traffic and the next moment you're dead. I mean, it's just like in that fast, you're dead. There's no repenting, no time to be sorry. I know I should. Ah, someday I'm going to do that. It's over. It's all over. So what do you do when you die? What happens? Well, I face God, I guess. I don't even believe in God. Well, you will then. Trust me. The one you didn't believe in will stand before you. Why shall I let you in heaven? And most people won't know what to say. They don't today. Well, I'm good enough. And then your life will flash by you. Because everything you've ever done, everything you've ever said has been recorded. There's nothing hidden from God. Your thoughts, all the deeds you've done, the intentions of your heart, your motivations, it'll all be seen, I guess. And you'll realize at that moment, you're not good at all. Look at your life. Look at your life. Look at your attitude about God. Look at it. Here it is. You can't deny it. The whole world's watching. All a man's sins will be shown. And there you are. And all you can do on that day is just hang your head. The argument's over. Church time is over. It's done. What are you going to do now? Well, a righteous God says, well, this is what the word said. You didn't want to hear it, but this is what it said. Now, here's a just recompense of your choices. All your choices you made have consequences. And the consequence of your choices in life is death. Next, I don't know how they'll do it. I haven't been there. Can you imagine? Can you imagine when a man walks away from that to wherever the next stage of outer dark, where, however it works, where you can never lose your memory, you never lose your mind in hell. Can you imagine when you walk into that and it's over and you'll never have another opportunity to talk to God forever, forever and ever and ever. And yet you remembered as you look at your life, all those tender moments in your life, you had a chance. Man, you held on to the seat to keep them going forward or whatever you do. And, oh, but boy, she and I couldn't help it. And he and I just, man, ugh. And one day you lost that. Your hair started turning gray. You had no interest in him anymore. It all faded away. And then you die. See, while we're here tonight talking, while we're dealing with this subject of saving souls or winning souls, asking the question, when is the soul one? When are you all one? 
We have to make plain to me and to you, all of us, cut no corners, leave nothing out. If you want to walk with God, you walk with him on his terms. If you don't want to, but you have known this way, he said, and you turn from it, like he said right here in six, and you turn away from it, would Jesus say to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant? If you turned away from him, would he or not? No. So now's the time. We have an opportunity now, right now, all of you do. If anybody here tonight is not a Christian, you're not saved, you know you're not. Some of you are not paying attention even now. See, there's only so much I can do. Y'all believe that? There's only so much. All I can do is use words. I can't grab people's brains. I can't, I can't grab somebody's mind and make them understand. That's the work of God. All I can do is let God give me words to say and say them, and then you deal with it. Now, if anything you heard was not of God, don't receive it. You know that, don't you? If you don't think it was inspired or you don't think it was given a message from the Lord for us, don't receive it. But if it was, if the words you heard was his word, and as you examine yourself to see if you're in the faith, then you need to deal with it. There's not a soul in this room, if God's dealing with you, you can't be saved. That decision is yours. We're going to make decisions the rest of our life. We all live by decisions, and the biggest one you'll ever make is to give your heart to Christ. Not to me, not to a church, but to Jesus Christ. That's it. Because that's the one that will keep you out of the pit and bring you to God. Amen. Bow your head with me. Father, in Jesus' name, these are your people. They are the sheep of your pasture. You are their Lord and you're their God. I don't know that all can receive that or that that is necessarily true for everybody. I pray that it is. You've given us a promise in the word that if we will labor in the word and give it forth, we will not only save ourselves, but everyone who hears us. And I'm praying, Lord, that all of those that have heard tonight will take to heart what has been said to judge for themselves, whether it was of man or of God. But they will listen and hold it to their heart. If there's anybody here tonight, Lord, who, who wants to be saved, that you put it in their heart to repent, I pray tonight you'll do that. That this will be the day of their salvation. The day their life began with Christ. I just ask you to continue to deal with all of us as people, as a church, as a body of believers, that we might do the, what we ought to be doing the way you want us to do it. And I ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Glory unto God. Look at our hearts tonight, Lord, before we go home. Look in our hearts. Is there one here tonight, Lord, that you're searching for? One that you're speaking to? Deal with them, Lord. You can do that. Amen. Lord, as we dismiss ourselves from this place tonight, 
We ask in Jesus' name that your word will be like a loud speaker in our hearts, speaking to us all the days of our lives that are ahead of us, that the lost people that we'll confront, that you'll give us a word to say to them. And when they ask us of the reason of the hope that is within us, may we not be ashamed to not know what to say. But may we answer, Lord, according as you have taught us. Make us to be like that. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.